0: Well, dear friends, if you'll take your copy of the Scriptures and turn with me to Psalm 13. Psalm 13. Before we read this passage of Scripture, let us ask the Lord to give us understanding. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we approach You, the God who has spoken. And Lord, we pray that our ears would be tuned to hear. We pray that You would make our hearts soft and pliable and press Your Word into us that it would change us as we see the way that You reveal Yourself, what we are to know concerning You and what it is You require of us. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well again, Psalm 13. Brethren, hear now the Word of God. To the choir master, A Psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because He has dealt bountifully with me. Well, thus far, God's holy word and may He bless our hearts with His truth in his well-known and highly regarded preface to his commentary on the psalms john calvin said the following listen carefully calvin said i have been accustomed to call this book the psalms i think not inappropriately an anatomy of all the parts of the soul for there is not an emotion of which any one can be conscious That is not here represented as in a mirror. Or rather, Calvin elaborates the Holy Spirit has drawn together here all the griefs, sorrows, fears, doubts, cares, perplexities, in short, all the distracting emotions with which the mind of men are wont to be agitated. Now, I find that word agitated, interesting. Because I think, at least in public before one another, that we are not willing as believers to let our agitation of soul with our fears, doubts, and perplexities show. But what we have in the Psalms, and what we have in this Psalm in particular, is earnest prayer arising from a state of great agitation. And in order to remind us that this is true believing experience, this psalm has been written for all of God's people to sing. Note In verse 1, the top there, it's given to the choir master. You see, brethren, one thing that's so useful about the psalms is they convey the honest heart struggle before God that we believers have living in a fallen world. Now, we know God is over this fallen world and we know God does not change. But we change. We have great vacillations in our emotions. Sometimes we hang on to God's promises with great confidence and sometimes we're barely hanging on at all. Because there are days when the trouble is thick and it seems as though the darkness is going to swallow us up completely. What are we to do? In those days, how do we face persistent darkness? Now, surely David did, as Saul's maybe decade-long pursuit to destroy David unfolds. There were mornings for David where the rising of the sun could not even make a dent in the darkness of his soul. Yet when those dark clouds persist, when confusion seemed to reign, David keeps running back to Yahweh, the covenant God, And thus, we learn in our believing experience what to do when heaviness of soul haunts us and we are harassed by adversaries. We cry to God and we wait for Him. Well, David lays out his troubled heart and we're going to see three things as he does so. We begin with sorrow erupts in verses 1 and 2. Sorrow erupts. You get an immediate sense, don't you, of a heart bursting with hardship, with sorrow, with seemingly never-ceasing affliction in David? Indeed, as one has said, it's not under the sharpest, but the longest of trials that we are most in danger of fainting. For notice how David stresses the length of his trial with a repetition. Verse 1, How long, O Lord, will You forget me forever? How long will You hide Your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Clearly, the trial David faces is not a fresh trial that is a sudden surprising trial. It's one that just won't quit. Four times he cries, how long? And with each cry, David states his kaleidoscope of sorrow. He starts with God. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? It seems to David that God is totally disregarding him in the sense of not seeing him and not helping him. David is in a mess, and it seems like the Lord is offering no practical help. That's what the sense here of forget means. I'm like a pot on the back burner about to boil over, Lord, and you're not watching. Have you abandoned me? Have you left me alone in this mess? Have you forgotten what you have promised? I'm still here drowning in this difficulty and there's no relief. Now, maybe we don't feel at liberty to say these kind of things to God, but David has no problem. Why? Well, he understands that Yahweh knows his heart. So why fake it with him? Why not tell him how you feel as you perceive it? Don't get mad and rage and complain and stop to praying. Bring the perplexity to the Lord. That's what David did. It feels like I'm all alone. And it's like you've been away from me forever. But not only does the repeated how long question point to the length of the trial, it it also indicates something of the intensity of David's inner turmoil. He's distraught. His words are tumultuous. It's one question after another question. David, if I can put it simply, is not okay. Now, why is it we think as Christians that we have to be okay all the time? It's fine for the dying French atheist Voltaire to say, I am abandoned by God and man. But if another Christian said to us, I feel abandoned by God, we might start questioning whether that person is a Christian at all. That isn't right. David is clearly a believer, but he feels forgotten and it lingers. And he asked God further, how long will you hide your face from me? If Yahweh's shining face upon us is His blessing, when He hides His face, it signals the complete absence of His blessing. It's as if David is saying, where are you? Things are falling apart and you're playing hide and seek. Brethren, have you ever felt that way? Maybe you can look back in your life to times of great blessing. Your marriage was great or your relationships were solid. Your health was strong. God was blessing your labors in your home, in your job. Church was a place of delight with great growth in grace. Your quiet times were amazing. You were having them. But now all blessing has ceased. Maybe you're experiencing communication difficulties with your spouse. Maybe your children have grown spiritually apathetic Even hostile. Maybe your body is racked with pain and fatigue. Business is unceasingly stressful. Trouble is everywhere in the world and in the church. And your devotions are so weak, you wonder where in the world is the Lord. That's what David's experiencing. The blessing of former days are gone. So in this array of lengthy troubles, David's thoughts and emotions were stirred into a frenzy. He says, verse 2, how long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? That is all day long. It's going on and on. You see what's going on with David? David is searching for solutions. He's taking counsel with himself. He's trying to come up with a plan to get out of the crisis. But his thoughts are confused. His plans are futile. Everything suggests failure, Loss, no-win scenarios, and that leaves David in abounding agony. He's exhausted. He's sad. He has no answers. And he asks the Lord, how long am I going to hurt and grieve? How long is my mind going to be so overwhelmed that I can't even think clearly? David sees no way of escape here. And brethren, when the burden is too big, when the trial presents to you nothing but closed doors, spiritual depression quickly follows. There is a blackness here with no light. Have you been there? Now we wouldn't say this is exactly what wouldn't we say this is exactly what Jesus is describing? Maybe even to a greater degree, when he's in the garden and he tells Peter, James, and John. My soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Jesus was greatly distressed. At that moment, everything was dark. So it is with David. Well, David brings one more complaint here in his struggle. Verse 2, how long will my enemy be exalted over me? Saul is a murdering liar a God-rejecting, unrepentant man, but he's still the king and he's still chasing me. How is it he can still be on top? David has a barely escaped death over and over again. And it's obvious Saul isn't going to back down. So Lord, how long are you going to permit these persistent assaults? I'm about to fall here. I'm going to be dashed to pieces. When is your mercy going to intervene? I'm not being melodramatic. Do you feel the intensity of David's emotions? David is struggling with God, with himself, with the situation around him. All of his relationships are in disarray and he's threatening to crack. However, while he's claiming he's in total darkness and that Yahweh is hidden, did you notice what David is doing? He's talking to God. How can David say, Yahweh has forgotten me, And then talk to him. Doesn't that seem strangely inconsistent? Well, yes, it is. But what does it tell us about the man? It says, in the blackest moments for the believer, there is still an eye of faith. David's complaining presupposes a compassionate God who sees, who hears, who will give mercy. And dear friends, this is a lesson for us to learn we need to be honest with God. We need to pour out our hearts to Him. All of our troubles. When we come, even in the darkest of our situations, we need to come seeking communion with the Lord. We cast ourselves on Him knowing that He is Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God. And He cares about us. Well, do you believe that? Do you claw through the felt distance from God by crying to Him? Do you offer Him your sorrow and even your tears? Do you tell Him you're about to crack? When our Savior was facing the hell of the cross, reaping judgment in our place, the agony was unspeakable. And darkness like this was beginning to fill the skies. And what did Jesus do? While no longer feeling the smile of His Father, He prayed. couldn't even say Father at this moment but he prayed, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you understand, brethren, that that was an utterance of faith? All is black. Affliction falls, but you are my God and I seek you. That is how to fight with the darkness. There's a tenacity of faith and that is a model for what must be in us. That we tell God our perplexities, our struggles with His timing. We tell Him, Lord, I need Your mercy and we cling to the truth that our Savior sympathizes with our weaknesses. But then as we come to our second point, we see that David doesn't only tell Yahweh how he feels, he tells him what he wants. Secondly, supplications uttered. And hopefully the power won't go out while we're working through this. Supplications uttered. The barrage of questions in verses 1 and 2 has now developed into three requests. Consider, answer, and light up in the sense of enlighten or rejuvenate. Now, I'm I'm pressing this point again, but don't you find it interesting that David has been saying, Yahweh has forgotten me forever. Yahweh has hidden His face. And yet, what is David still doing? He's still praying. Apparently, he's prayed and prayed and prayed some more over all of these matters. And though he's prayed, the heavens are like brass. It's like his... His prayers are balloons with lead in them. They don't even go up, they just stay there. And yet, as David feels this way, what does he do? He just gets more intense in laying out his supplications. We might say David prays with even more stubbornness. And this is what faith does faith will not go silent. It's an indication, dear friends, that you are in a terrible spiritual frame if you stop talking. God? Are we in whatever darkness we're in refusing to be silent? Well, feeling that God has lost sight of him, David first asked the Lord to consider verse 3. But that word isn't really forceful enough. It's literally, look. David is saying, look at me, Lord. See where I am. Notice my condition. And of course, when the saints call on Yahweh to look, it's similar to the request, remember. It's not that God has forgotten or failed to see. He knows all. He sees all. David understands that. Otherwise, what would be the point of crying out to God in the first place? If God doesn't see, why bother? But the significance of the request is that the Lord would take action. Just as when the Lord says that He remembers His covenant, it's Him acting on His promise, So requesting him to look is to request him to move, to rise up. But then to emphasize even further the point, David adds to the request, look and answer me. Lord, give me Your attention and speak. And yet notice there's an argument included here. Look and answer me, O Yahweh my God. Do you see how David lays hold of God? He addresses Him as Yahweh, my God. Lord, You are mine. You have entered into a covenant with me. I know You. I'm attached to You. You're the God who is unchangeable in Your purposes. You've given Yourself to me vowing to be my God and I to be part of Your people. Show yourself faithful. I didn't make this relationship. You sought me. You brought me near to You with Your cords of steadfast love. You called me into fellowship. You've given me standing with grace before You, drawing me to Yourself to be Your own child. So Lord, be what You are. Show Yourself to be my God by answering me. Lord, break Your silence and minister to my soul. Brethren, do we come to our God conscious of who He is? Our God. Indeed, can't we... Express this in even more amazing terms than David. Because He, our God, is our Father the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the vast differences as we move from Old Covenant to New Covenant, I would say radical differences. There's only four times in the Old Testament where God is referred to directly as Father. In the New Testament, it's everywhere. What has changed? Christ has ushered us into the throne room of grace where there's intimacy with the Father. We come as those who've been bought with a price. We belong to the Lord. He's given Himself to us. Indeed, His oath, His covenant, the blood of Jesus, they always support us. And our God doesn't lie. Therefore, we can expect that our God will answer. We've been given access through the purity of Jesus' name. We pray as the sons of God united to Christ and what we ask in Jesus' name, He hears. So when we're overwhelmed, greatly perplexed and sinking, we can expect that our God would look upon us and answer. For He's given His own Son in demonstration of His love, of His unfailing commitment to be our God. Yet to these requests, David adds one more into verse 3. Light up my eyes. What does that mean? Well, Scripture interprets Scripture and here we're helped out by 1 Samuel 14 in the middle of the wars of King Saul with the Philistines. Jonathan and his armor bearer had taken on a garrison of the Philistines and the Lord had granted them victory. But the battle had wearied Jonathan so that when he came upon a flow of honey in the forest. He dipped in his staff and put it to his mouth and ate and we're told, 1 Samuel 14, 27, his eyes became bright. From the context, it's clear that the food restored energy to his weary body. He was rejuvenated and ready to fight some more. So David, when he requests for the Lord to light up my eyes, he's asking, God renew my strength. One can only imagine the physical and emotional exhaustion that David felt. He was worn down from fighting and running. If you just add up how many times David is nearly killed in 1 Samuel, it's about 15 times from Saul. And it just goes on and on and on. And Lord, you need to come and impart strength to me. You need to give zeal to my weary soul. So David asks him, Lord, Light me up. Rejuvenate me. And then to bolster the force of His three requests, consider, answer, light up, He adds three arguments. You see it in verse 3? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. What's David saying here? Well, he's saying, Lord, if You don't look and speak and strengthen me, then I'm going to die. Now by this, David no doubt means if the Lord doesn't come to His aid, He simply won't hold up. Just as Jesus, when sorrowful to the point of death in the Garden of Gethsemane, needed strengthening, and Luke 22 says that an angel of the Lord strengthened Him, so God's people in our distress need strength lest we perish. David is saying, not only will the one you call your own die, Lord, without your intervention, my enemy will think he has won. The foes will rejoice. Now, brethren, this is a powerful argument in prayer. And it's powerful because, Lord, what does it say about your glory if your enemies triumph over your anointed? Well, it says you're not powerful enough to give victory to your servant. This is a threat, not just to me, it's a threat to your glory. God, You must look and You must answer and You must strengthen that You might be exalted. And brethren, this is one of the most Christological points of the whole psalm. Again, think of Jesus' emotions as He's hanging on the cross. He had said that He was sorrowful to the point of death. How is He going to endure? If He perished in the garden without fulfilling the work that His Father sent Him to do, then the enemies of God would prevail. And what would that mean for you and me? No salvation for us. And the glory of God comes crashing down. As it stood, however, at Jesus' death, while the enemy thought they overcame and they began to rejoice. Maybe there's no better scene in literature, really, to think about C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe with the White Witch and all of her lackeys on the dark night rejoicing as Aslan is led in in humiliation and they're shouting as though they're victorious. And yet, God gave His Son strength to enable Him to persevere. Hebrews 9.14, Jesus, through the eternal Spirit, offered Himself to God. The Spirit enabled Him to do this hardest of things. He was sustained to the end and He was strengthened. And then the Lord raised Him, triumphing over His enemies. Thus, Christ secured our salvation. The Kingdom of God conquered the Kingdom of this world. But in the face of the cross, Christ had to look at that victory by faith and cry out for God to look, to answer, and to strengthen. Now you and me, we might wonder, how in the world does this apply to us, this type of prayer? Because I'm not the Lord's anointed. Well, the truth applies in this way. Since we are united to Christ, what happens to us reflects upon the glory of God. If God doesn't look and answer and strengthen us in our hardship, and if we are overcome, squashed by the devil, then Jesus will have failed. You can set that argument before God because the glory of Christ rests on our spiritual preservation. Jesus said that He had liberated us from the devil having defeated him. Jesus overcame the world and Jesus has not lost one. So, we who are in Christ shall not be devoured by the evil one. And no matter how weary or abandoned that we feel, the devil will not stand over us and triumph. We overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. Dear friends, do we lay hold of these truths that God has given and then present them back in prayer? You see, that's what David is doing. David feels deeply, he emotes significantly in the psalm, yet, David also thinks deeply and lays out arguments before God. This is how it should be in the Christian life. We're not unfeeling robots who just quote scripture to the air. But neither are we just oozing emotion without truth. We feel and we think. We think and we feel. And we give God all of us asking for His help. David will not put himself in a situation in which he has not because he asks not. He makes his request known. And brethren, this is the turning point of the psalm. How does David go from darkness to light? He goes to light through the path of urgent prayer and we must do likewise. Well, see finally with me. After saying how he feels and telling God what he wants, David's confidence is restored. See finally, secure in Yahweh's love. It appears as David utters his struggles and makes his supplications known in view of his relationship to Yahweh that the turbulence of his heart is steadied. Now, in, in the original language here, you can see this in the lines. How long, how long, how long, how long? Four lines. Answer, well, consider, answer me, strengthen, less, 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 three lines. And then two lines of confidence. 24 words, 17 words, 11 words. You see what's happening to David? His perspective is changing. Maybe just the thought of his enemy's triumph stirred David with fresh assurance that Yahweh would never allow that to happen. Never will His purpose be thwarted. Never will His covenant fail. Thus, in a declaration of confidence, though dark circumstances have not lifted from him, David says, literally, verse 5, but I, in your steadfast love, I have trusted. Notice the emphatic way he puts it even though my enemy wants to say I have prevailed over him, and though he desires to rejoice in my death, but I, I have trusted, or I myself have trusted. Brethren, David has been digging into his heart and he's shaking out all the fears, the grief, the confusion about Yahweh's timing. But when he was probing his soul and expressing his frustrations, he found something else. He found a faith that remains. I myself trust. I, I have confidence and I resolutely stake my life, my present and my future not on me and not on my ability to figure it out, but I, I have trusted in your steadfast love. Now again, David isn't saying, suddenly everything is coming up roses. The sunshine has come out and it's all better. Suddenly there's a miraculous intervention and every trouble is gone. No, they're not. We get no indication here that David saw an immediate answer to his prayer. Indeed, in a moment when David starts speaking of rejoicing in Yahweh's salvation and singing to Him, he'll use future tense verbs. That's what I will do. Trouble is thick now, but I'm confident the clouds will vanish. However, until then, Lord, I believe. I put my confidence in You, though I don't see. And David isn't clinging to something about himself though there is a resolve of faith in the soul, his faith is in Yahweh. And it's specifically something about Yahweh's character that catches his attention. His steadfast love. And this is the second emphatic declaration in this verse. Normally, in Hebrew syntax and the way that they would structure their sentences, the verb comes first. That's what we would expect. In Hebrew, we would expect it to read, much like the ESV puts it, I have trusted in your steadfast love. But that is not what it says, literally. But I, in your steadfast love. The object is moved forward for emphasis. Lord, in your steadfast love, I have trusted. And do you see what suddenly happened to David's perspective? Previously, he was speaking of his situation, but now, through the struggle of earnest prayer, he has a new sight. Now his focus is entirely on the character of God. Maybe you've heard it said or asked, why do we pray when God already knows? Well, prayer doesn't change God. But prayer changes us. David suddenly sees what he wasn't seeing before. And it's what he already knows about the Lord. Yahweh had famously declared to Moses in Exodus 34, I am Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and rich or plenteous or abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now, what was the context in which the Lord revealed that declaration of His character? It was when Moses was meeting with God on the mountain. But it wasn't the first time that Moses was meeting with God on the mountain those first 40 days, because while Moses was on the mountain for 40 days, receiving the ten tablets of stone and the instructions for the tabernacle, what did God's people decide to do at the foot of the mount? Make a golden calf. Rise up and play a connotation of probably sexual immorality in light of fertility religion. Mixing Yahwehism with some type of Baalism. They had just had a covenant made with them and immediately they broke it. And then Moses comes down from the mountain. He shatters the original stone tablets. He goes back up to the Lord to plead for mercy. And it was then, in the face of striking sin, that Yahweh now revealed this about His character. In essence, the Lord was saying His love is beyond comprehension. His love doesn't give His people what they deserve, destruction. But more than that, it is a love that will not cease. It is a love that Accompanied with loyalty. Or to quote a great hymn, a love that will not let me go. Yahweh's love is stubborn, tenacious, determined, unflinching in faithfulness. And as David looked back on his life, he could see this. He was unable to defeat Goliath. He was unable to win over the Philistines. He was able to dodge Saul's spear. He was able to get into Philistine country, be imprisoned, and get out. He was able to be upheld even when Saul entered the very cave he was hiding in. Over and over again, the Lord kept David, provided for David, even gave David encouragements in Saul's own house with Jonathan, Saul's son, strengthening David's hand in God or Abigail coming to him and reminding him of Yahweh's steadfast love. In fact, both Jonathan and Abigail told David of God's covenant promises. You're going to be the king. God has said so. And the Lord is loyal to His people. Well, brethren, how much more should we recognize that God is loyal in the new covenant? For what is the proof to us that God's steadfast love will never fail? Indeed, what is the proof of the extent to which God will go in love of His people? He will give His Son and He will spare Him not. Delivering Him over to death. That our sins would be cleansed. That we could have a right standing, a righteous gift in ourselves before God. That is, we could be credited as right before the Lord so that now justice smiles and asks no more. And Paul teaches us, Romans 8.32, If the Father has delivered up His own Son, the darling of heaven, the greatest gift that could ever be given, how will He not, along with Jesus, freely give us all things? Our Father will give us whatever we need. He's already given the greatest gift. So the confidence that we can have is even greater than what David is here developing. And it's this, that no tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword shall separate us. From the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord, God's love upholds us, upholds us, and therefore, what does David say? My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I sing to the Lord because He has dealt bountifully with me. Calvin says of David's joy in singing here that David's indicating no affliction shall ever shake out of my heart the joy. Of faith, Is that true of us, brethren? Can we wrestle in prayer, fight through our turbulent feelings, and then ultimately rest in God's character and even sing? Can we, like the Apostle Paul, say that we are sorrowful, in the Greek it's continual tense, we're always sorrowing, but always rejoicing. Because the day is going to come when we can look back and say, our covenant God Yahweh has dealt bountifully with me. He's showered His good gifts upon me. Lavish grace on my head, my cup overflows. May we then, dear friends, knowing that deliverance is coming because His love will never let us go, may we already sing of the Lord's goodness. This psalm is not telling you put on a happy face and pretend to rejoice while you're miserable. It's saying bring your misery to God. And as you look at Him, see how faithful He is. And then His joy will fill your heart to overflow May that be our experience. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we come into Your presence thanking You that You are big enough to hear our doubts, our fears, our perplexities. Indeed, You tell us in Your Word that You remember our frame that we are but dust. Lord, You know us completely. You know our weaknesses. You know our stress points. You know our temptations. You know our anxieties. And yet, Your love to us continues. Would we therefore look to You, cry out to You, and trust in Your steadfast love. Lord, we know this doesn't mean that in this life a fallen world, everything will be easy for us. But we do know that we have the hope of the glory of God. And therefore, we can rejoice even in our sufferings. Because ultimately, You have poured out Your Spirit into our hearts. And He has given us proof of Your love and assurance of our great hope. Help us cling to that hope. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.